Bookworm Games, Episode 12, I Have No Something. This is Wesley Schantz. In this week's discussion, we'll keep up the blistering pace, ranging over fly honey and zombie paper, the graveyard passage with its swag, Saturn Valley, and Grapefruit Falls with Belch's base behind it, and the third Your Sanctuary location, Milky Well. And we should still have ample time for a soak in the hot spring to wash all that smelly gunk off and to drink a cup of coffee with the Mr. Saturn at the tree stump by the newly taller ladder. Our touchstones this time are Dante, Chaucer, Goya, all in the circle of Saturn, of course, though I'll also be quoting more extensively from Earthbound itself for once, not just in scattered references one-liners, but dwelling on that coffee break sequence in some detail. In this program so far, I've been cavalier about jumping from the game to all sorts of tangential and fanciful connections, mainly because I think they're interesting, and they open up new ways of thinking about the game, and the other works, and the life that we're borrowing the time from to do all this contemplative work and play. Playful reading like this, inviting you all to enjoy playing and reading along with me, may overstep the bounds of propriety at times and glide over a major question too lightly or give undue attention to some minor point which doesn't really warrant it. But I hope at times it also hits the mark. Next week, I'll be talking again with another friend and a big Earthbound fan, Stephen Abel, thus returning full circle now that we're about a third of the way through the series as he was the first person I thanked back in the first episode for introducing me to the burgeoning world of games analysis. This week I would also like to thank my teachers, among them Madame Suzanne Shait, who left a very kind comment on last week's episode, and so I hope she's listening. She's been a wonderful mentor back when I was learning Latin and French at Gaithersburg High, before and after I graduated. She was generous with her time always demonstrated unflagging courtesy and energy in a room full of sullen, unappreciative clods of potential, like Vesuvian effigies stirred to life by language. And also to Dr. Donald McCall, a.k.a. Art Boy, whose evening art history class became the crown jewel of my small liberal arts college education, Washington at Chester. Simultaneously, he was so down-to-earth and flighty fancy in the glow of the lantern slides with equal sprezzatura and verve telling stories of Canadian gas station adventures and giving us his latest research on newly discovered statuettes of Anatolian good shepherds. And for the other side of art history's all-encompassing embrace, for the fatherly attention to the fall of the sparrows of individual masterworks from Homer and the Bible through to Tolkien, before I ever went to St. John's, I got the tutelage of Professor Corey Olson, close reader extraordinaire. He has now set up his own university. Search up Signum or Mythgard and be merry. And I help with that by offering courses for younger students on OutSchool and the summer camp style Signum Academy. You can check those out too, okay, Google? Anyway, my approach here is far 
from that St. John's or Tolkien professor scrupulous resistance to appealing to biographical or historical context, and instead making whimsical allusions to far different works. But I do hope it's akin in that it aspires to reading like a fellow storyteller, interpreting the text in a spirit of charity with Chaucer's mixture of earnest and gamma. That's earnestness and playfulness, if my middle English serves. For more on Saturn in Dante, of course, you can look up Giuseppe Mazzotta's Yale Open Course. Or, depending on when you're listening to this, you can check out Alexander Schmid's epic series of podcasts on it when he arrives there. In the meantime, check out his work on the Iliad and support more like it on his Patreon. Since we collaborate on so much, that'll be helping me out too. And as it is, so long as you pay some taxes, I'm already getting some tiny percentage of your financial support since I work as a substitute teacher in our nation's public schools. And that's much appreciated. It pays the bills, and it lets me work on my writing and other projects, so I got no worries. After much preamble, then, we left off with Jeff and the Skyrunner going from gracefully circling, locked on to Paula's call for him to come to their aid, to its crashing through the graveyard's hollowed pavement with a boom, like the one which opened the game, the arrival of the meteorite that fateful night. Shaking off the burnt bits and soot, Jeff makes a debonair entrance. Though the Skyrunner can't be fixed for now, He's got the bad key machine to release the friends from their locker. Whatever nefarious plans the zombies had for them, to turn them into zombies too, or to force them to listen to Pokey's annoying knock and never be able to open the door, whatever it was, Jeff arrives in time to turn them loose. Up from underground, we have a new start to the game. You'll soon see there are new enemies around town, urban zombies, and most fearsome, of all their zombie dogs, as well as a new tent that's appeared in the field cluttered with empty circus wagons to the south. If, as I was suggesting, the circus tent in the middle of town suggests the human's hapless government, this satellite tent would be an infiltration by Master Belch in a bid for overt rule over the populace, a new parasitic order for indeed the tent is equipped with eyes to watch and a mouth to consume with. Here, Jeff's stock of bottle rockets bought from the back alley arms dealer comes in handy, and when the boogie tent falls, the zombies animating it run away, leaving a core of garbage, and in it the precious jar of fly honey. An out a belch agent lurking by one of the billboards explains that this gross condiment is the secret to Master Belch's strength, and the many slimy little piles you meet, the belchlets, will crave your fly honey when they smell it on you, whether that's to strengthen themselves or simply so as to be able to return it to Belch for brownie points. So, the sticky fly honey is that which helps whoever wants to climb that greasy tent pole, who doesn't mind a bad taste in the mouth and a squishiness of the spine so long as ingesting it yields increase of power. 
walking the dark streets, musing such thoughts, you'll shortly be getting a call from Apple Kid, your other brainy friend, who's a bit of a slob, telling you about his latest invention. And moments after that, the mock pizza delivery man will bring it to you. As it happens, he's tired of looking for Ness and doing Apple Kid this favor, and he's decided you must be him. Wink. Which works out fine, because you are. So, using the zombie paper in the big tent has no immediate effect. But if you go to the hotel once again, despite that rough night you had last time you went there, lured in by the zombie lady and her minions hiding behind the door, you'll see that overnight all the zombies are drawn to the trap, including those two who are guarding the graveyard path. You can stop in to visit them, undead and dying, quipping about their agony in a morbid, air-quoted way, which seems calculated to give you mixed feelings about your plan. To restate the classic conundrum posed by a work like Beowulf, does it take a monster to defeat monsters? Or, to continue the political analogy, must corrupt, sticky means be used to wipe out corrupt gatekeepers of a zombified traditional order? with their sticky fingers, their leering red eyes, and putrid flesh. On your way through the newly opened path, bravery and irreverent callousness are rewarded if you open the caskets as you battle through swarms of bestial foes who have at least had the decency to let them alone. The exponential increase in your party's power with each new member adds an additional turn which can be the difference between a battle lasting one round and two, between being attacked once or twice in a battle and not at all. And then particularly once you have the slime generator, you can rack up turns without being attacked back. You also have more choices how to allocate items, of which you can carry quite a few more, despite all the slots taken up by Jeff's special items. And you can choose whether to boost Ness's stats as much as possible and use the other two as support, loading them with healing items, or to try and balance out your party, having another friend now who can heal to free up the other two to attack, or vice versa. And plus, bottle rockets. The silver bracelet, the deluxe sandwich making you run at a clip, you must imagine taking from the lunchbox or off the wrist of one of the skeletons moldering in their coffins. The game suggests some such drama, wailing ta-da when you unfasten the lids. Whether to use your burst of speed to dash by and out of the room or to zip from foe to foe quickly, sneaking up on them from behind while you're still blinking and invulnerable between fights is also up to you. However, there's no eluding the first of the slimy little piles who waits for you at the exit. And if you're particularly unlucky, his stinky burps can make your team's tears blind them. Or perhaps around this point in the game, Ness will start feeling homesick for the first time, losing the will to fight, craving pie, missing his jammies. Calling home is the only cure for this ailment. And when you do... Your mom will have heard about your new girlfriend and will encourage you to keep going. 
while she gives the dog a bath. When you do emerge into the Grapefruit Falls area, you're greeted by an old man who knows there's a town full of strange people nearby. Taking the next cave entrance you see, you start to hear their music echoing faintly in the tunnel, and you come across some of their many rich garbage cans, until, coming out once more, the awesome music rings out full force. Saturn Valley. Enclave of funny little people ensconced in their little hollow in houses shaped like they are. Stubby legs, round noses, whisper, whiskers, and gentle eyes, and a red bow on top. When they speak, their accent is represented visually. And you may recall hearing, or seeing rather, a voice like this back in Happy Happy Village. And in many ways, this area is a kind of variation on that part of the game. Even geographically, they seem to line up. Both are east of a river, maybe even the same one. Whereas Happy Happy Village was under an oppressive cult, the Saturns are a kind of family or community speaking their own language, with boings and zooms harmoniously standing on their ladders, putzing around in their warren, wallowing in the pink hot springs. They have some excellent items for sale, and they will give you rare coins as gifts when you prove yourself. Their doctor and the inn are free and of the highest quality. But rather than attracting unwary seekers or kidnapping people for nefarious sacrifices, the Mr. Saturns are instead being kidnapped by Belch and his minions and taken behind the waterfall. One Mr. Saturn knows the secret password, not to speak at all, but to wait three minutes. That's Ness's forte. But it's still an awfully long time to sit still as a kid, watching the water animation, listening to the music last heard in Peaceful Rest Valley. Then those ladders, too, in Saturn Valley. Play with your expectations and memories. Your experience with the Bubble Monkey, for instance, and the inspiring dungeon designer in Winters might come to mind. The ones here allow you to climb to a point much too high in one place, too high to allow you to dismount onto the surrounding ground, and a few rungs too low to reach the hot springs in another place. You can't move the two ladders, of course, and swap them. Is the Mr. Saturn up there keeping a lookout, like the kid outside your tree fort back in Onet? Or is he just daydreaming, watching butterflies and beetles, or waiting, not saying anything, and in so doing, saying the password that will let you go those places you can see but not reach, and thus proceed to other places unseen. Those ladders also remind me of the painter Hieronymus Bosch in his garden of earthly delights, nicknamed Strawberries. I'll read from my old art history textbook, 7th edition, Honor and Fleming. No paintings of the period are more remote from the spirit of the Italian Renaissance than those of Bosch, an almost exact contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci. 
Bosch stresses the frailty and wickedness, not the beauty and nobility of humankind. The pleasures of the flesh, which Italian artists celebrated, he condemned as severely as the author of The Imitation of Christ. Oh, how brief, how false, how inordinate and filthy are all those pleasures. End quote. Musical instruments, which to Giorgioni and other Italian artists symbolized a soothing and celestial harmony, were for Bosch the agents of the devil. In his view of hell, they surround the damned, one of whom is crucified on a harp. Perhaps he had in mind the words of Isaiah 5.11-14. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflames them, and the harp and the vial, the tabret and pipe, and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself, and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. Bosch's view of hell is not, however, as was that of medieval artists, a mere aggregate of symbols. His is truly a vision, a hallucinatory, unbounded fluid space seen from far away and above, is rendered with complete command of the new techniques of pictorial representation. In the chaotic area between the foreground and the burning buildings on the horizon, human figures, demons, and various strange and incongruous objects seem to float, all depicted with a delicate precision and sense of form which give them a weird reality. Even the most bizarre are uncomfortably tangible presences. It is this that differentiates them from the demons and monsters abounding in medieval art. He endeavored to find for his fantastic pictures the most out-of-the-way things, but they were always true to nature, a Spaniard wrote of him in the mid-16th century. Despite the prevalent classicism of the time, his work was greatly admired and collected by Philip II of Spain, Titian's patron, among others, and copied in costly tapestry. And again, that describes the work now called The Garden of Earthly Delights. Although its precise subject matter and original function remain obscure, for it cannot have been intended as an altarpiece. In the late 16th century, it was called Lust, or Strawberry Painting. The most convincing interpretation is that the outer panels, when closed, represent the world under the flood, the central panel of the world before the flood, flanked by the Garden of Eden on the left and Hell on the right, thus illustrating the origin, indulgence, and punishment of sin. And that's all in my art book, page 460 and 461. There's a great representation there of the right panel, hell, with a ladder right in the middle. But I'm sure you can find it online easily enough. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, so those ladders also raise echoes of Dante's and biblical imagery. Think of Jacob's ladder, Dante's longer ladder that he hears about near the bottom of the inferno. Here in Canto 24, it's Virgil speaking. Now you must cast aside your laziness, my master said, for he who rests on down or under covers cannot come to fame, and he who spends his life without renown leaves such a vestige of himself on earth as smoke bequeaths to air or foam to water. Therefore get up, defeat your breathlessness with spirit that can win all battles if the body's heaviness does not deter it. 
A longer ladder still is to be climbed. It's not enough to have left them behind. If you have understood, now profit from it. Then I arose and showed myself far better, equipped with breath than I had been before. Go on, for I am strong and confident. That's around lines 46 and on in the Mandelbaum translation of Inferno. Um, then, of course, there's also the ladder of contemplation in the seventh circle of paradise, the heaven of contemplation associated with Saturn. Beatrice speaking, We now are in the seventh splendor. This, beneath the burning lion's breast, transmits to earth its rays, with which his force is mixed. Let your mind follow where your eyes have led, and let your eyes be mirrors for the figure that will appear to you within this mirror. That man who knows just how my vision pastured upon her blessed face might recognize the joy I found when my celestial guide had asked of me to turn my mind aside, or he'd away my joy when I obeyed against my joy in contemplating her. Within that crystal, as it revolves around the earth, bears as its name the name of that dear king whose rule undid all evil. I saw a ladder rising up so high that it could not be followed by my sight, its color gold when gold is struck by sunlight. I also saw so many flames descend those steps that I thought every light displayed in heaven had been poured out from that place, and just as jackdaws at the break of day together rise, such is their nature's way to warm their feathers chilled by night, then some fly off and never do return, and some wheel back to that point where they started from, while others, though they wheel, remain at home. Such were the ways I saw those splendors take as soon as they had struck a certain step, where they had thronged as one in radiance. Again, that's Mandelbaum's translation, this time Paradiso 21. And this you can find online. Uh, I don't own this book, but I found it easily enough. Now, that image of the latter might also call to mind Platonic dialogues, Homeric epics, Hesiod, Theogony. I'll read a bit from that since it's a little out there. This is, as soon as one of them was born, Uranus would conceal them all in hiding places in Gaia and did not send them back into the light, and he delighted in his evil deed. Monstrous Gaia was groaning within, congested. She conceived a cunning evil trick. Quickly she made the element of gray adamant, and fashioned a sickle, and showed it to her children. Then she spoke, encouraging them, the sorrowing in her heart. My children, with a reckless father, if only you agree to obey me, we would avenge the evil outrage of this father of yours, for he first devised unseemly deeds. Thus she spoke, and binding fear grabbed them all, and none of them spoke. Then great Kronos of crooked counsel, emboldened, quickly addressed his dear mother with words, Mother, I promise that I will bring to completion this deed, since I do not care for that ill-named father of ours, for he first devised unseemly deeds. Thus he spoke, and monstrous Gaia laughed loudly in her heart. And perhaps you know the story of what happens next. So that's Kronos in Greek, Saturn to the Romans, 
depicted with a sickle, whether you think of him as time or the reaper or the sower, that chain of process is linking all the way back to whatever first fall you might imagine in your mythology. And uh, of course, in Ovid too, I'll read a bit from there, we have the image of the golden age. This was the golden age that without coercion, without laws, spontaneously nurtured the good and the true. There was no fear or punishment. There were no threatening words to be read, fixed in bronze, no crowd of suppliants fearing the judge's face. They lived safely without protection. No pine tree felled in the mountains had yet reached the flowing waves to travel to other lands. Human beings only knew their own shores. There were no steep ditches surrounding towns, no straight war trumpets, no coiled horns, no swords and helmets. Without the use of armies, people passed their lives in gentle peace and security. The earth herself also, freely, without the scars or plows, untouched by hoe, produced everything from herself. Contented with food that grew without cultivation, they collected mountain strawberries and the fruit of the strawberry tree, wild cherries, blackberries clinging to the tough brambles, and acorns fallen from Jupiter's spreading oak tree. Spring was eternal, and gentle breezes caressed with warm air the flowers that grew without being seeded. Then the untilled earth gave of its produce, and without needing renewal, the fields whitened with heavy ears of corn. Sometimes rivers of milk flowed, sometimes streams of nectar, and golden honey trickled from the green holm oak. When Saturn was banished to gloomy Tartarus and Jupiter ruled the world, then came the people of the age of silver that is inferior to gold, more valuable than yellow bronze. And it goes on. So, this idea is everywhere. You could look at Don Quixote's discourse on the golden age, etc., etc. But a good description of the concept of the chain of being as well as the darker side of Saturn's story, comes in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. In the opening story, after the general prologue, when, chosen by lot to go first, but fittingly too, as the most noble of the pilgrims, the knight tells a tale depicting a medieval cosmos of classical content into which amorous nature, both pity and desire, impetuously erupt. In the great allegorical set piece of the tournament between the cousins for the hand of the lovely Amelia, each prays to a different pagan god, or if you like, a chief virtue, in a kind of ultimate rock-paper-scissors. One to Mars, one to Venus, that's the cousins Arcite and Palamon, and then Emily herself prays to Diana, goddess of chastity. But as we discover, or perhaps Chaucer's readers and listeners would have known all along, the true power of providence is above these, hinted at darkly in the person of Saturn. And I quote here from my edition of uh, the Middle English, so I hope it's fairly comprehensible. So Venus herself goes and beseeches Saturn. My dear Dr. Venus, quod Saturna, my course that hath so weed for to turn, 
hath more power than wot any man. Mean is the drenching in the say so wan. Mean is the prison in the dirk coat. Mean is the strangling and the hanging by the throat. The murmur and the churl is rebelling, the groining and the privy empoisoning. I do vengeance and plain correction. Will I de dwell in the signa of the leon? Mean is the ruin of the here hollis, the falling of the tourus and of the walls upon the minor or the carpenter. He slew Samson, shaking the pillar, and mina be the maladies cold, the dirk treasons and the cast is old. Me looking is the father of pestilence, no weep no more, I shall don diligence, that Palamon that is thy known knight, oh, I missed it there, kneeked, shall have his lady, as thou hast him heat. Though Mars shall help a his kneeked, yet natheless, Betwixt you there mot be some team apiece, I'll be ye knocked of o complexion that causes all day switch division. I am the nail, ready at thy will, weep no no more, I will thy lust fulfill. And that's around, uh, around lines twenty four fifty three or so in the knight's tale, the Kneek's tale, and yeah, that K does get pronounced just like in Monty Python's Holy Grail. In your good Middle English pronunciation anyway it should be. Now we also have an answering passage from Aegeus who sort of represents the human Saturn in that he's the old father of the current king Theseus. No man meeked gladden Theseus, saving his older father Aegeus, that knew this world is transmutation, as he had a saying it change both oop and don. Joy after woe and woe after gladness had showed him in samplers and leakness. Reeked as there did never man, quod he, that he ne lived in earth in some degree, reeked so there lived never man, he said, in all this world, that sometime he ne did. This world needs but a thoroughfare full of woe, and way been pilgrims passing a toe and fro. Death is an end of every worldly sore, and over all this yet said he much or more, to this effect, but full weasily to enhort the people that they should him rencomfort. And Theseus himself, oh, sorry, that was around lines 20, 28, 37 or so. Um, and of course, you have the beautiful metafictional moment there of talking about pilgrims within the tale, first of many such. Theseus himself gets the final word, of course, as he said his will, or made his decision, my note says. The first mover of the cause above, when he first madder the fair chain of love, great was the effect, and high was his intent, well wist he we, and what thereof he meant, for with that fair chain of love he bond the fear, the air, the water, and the land, in certain bounds, 
and they may not flee. That same prince and that mover quadhe hath established in this wretched world dune certain days and duration to all that is engendered in this place over the which die they may not pass. Almo they yet though day is well abrega, there needeth not known authority to lega, for it is proved by experience, but that may least declare in me sentence. Then may men by this order well discern that thilke mover stable is and eterna. Well may men know, but it be a fool that every part deriveth from his whole, for nature hath not taken his beginning of no party of cantle of a thing, but of a thing that parfit is and stable, descending so till it be corrompable. And therefore, of his wise purveyance, he hath so well beset his ordinance that species of things and progressions shulen enduren by successions and not etern without in any lee. This mayest do understand and say not ye. Alright, and he goes on, but good passage a little bit later, around 3040, 3041. Dana is it wisdom, as it thinketh me, to mock in virtue of necessity. So, make a virtue of necessity, says Duke Theseus. That's towards the end of the Nixtale. The Knight's Tale, with all this hard case for a tremendous meditation on the contemporary status of the chain of being, that fair chain of love spoken of. That concept, uh, I recommend Wendell Berry in his essay, Poetry of Place. And again, for more discussions of medieval philosopher poets and modern fantasy myth makers, check out the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, his website's Mythgard and Signum. And for those Dante lectures, well, again, listen to Mazzotta's Yale Open Course. It's so insightful and refreshing, yet it makes you wonder why waste time on some academic ideological antics that seem to predominate and make so much noise, when all the good stuff is there, freely at hand, waiting quietly and quietly saying the password. But I'll climb down again from my soapbox stack of a ladder. We've gone through Belch's factory where the Saturns were forced to make fly honey, and that's a great place to level up, roasting the foppies like zombies, Mr. Saturns, and then taking their psi points with magnet as needed. And you gotta recall that your experience points are now being split three ways. So a little leveling may be in order until Belch and his slimy little piles are pushovers for all their flatulence. And then once we're back in Saturn Valley, the free hotel is a perfect place to fix lots of contraptions during the night. And then you can level up again there against the fast mushrooms and the fierce plant men that lurk around the Milky Well. And there's milk and honey again. And that image in the middle of the Bosch painting sure looks a lot like Milky Well, but let's pass over that. Noting in passing, though, that it's your mom's voice that you hear there at the source, the wellspring, 
And as we gather a few more sanctuaries, Data will want to take a step back and wonder just what sort of pattern might be emerging in these glimpses of the past. And just so, we come to the coffee break, which you can take as often as you like, and which provides a kind of retrospective of your journey so far, not so close to the end as Dante is by Canto 22 of Paradise when he casts his eyes back. I'll spare you the quote, but still, a good third or so in, and here's the coffee break. Drink coffee before go. Say yes to me. Say no to me. Bottoms up. Boing. You've traveled very far from home. Do you remember how your long and winding journey began with someone pounding at your door? It was Pokey, the worst person in your neighborhood, who knocked on the door that fateful night. On your way, you have walked, thought, and fought, yet through all this, you have never lost your courage. You have grown steadily stronger, though you have experienced the pain of battle many times. You are no longer alone in your adventure. Paula, who is steadfast, kind, and even pretty, is always at your side. Jeff is with you as well. Though he is timid, he came from a distant land to help you. Ness, as you certainly know by now, you are not a regular young man. You have an awesome destiny to fulfill. The journey from this point will be long, and it will be more difficult than anything you have undergone to this point. Yet, I know you will be all right. When good battles evil, which side do you believe wins? Do you have faith that good is triumphant? One thing you must never lose is courage. If you believe in the goal you are striving for, you will be courageous. There are many difficult times ahead, but you must keep your sense of humor Work through the tough situations and enjoy yourself. When you have finished this cup of coffee, your adventure will begin again. Next, you must pass through a vast desert and proceed to the big city of Forsyth. Ness, Paula, Jeff, I wish you luck.
So I hope you could hear some of the music in the background there. And if you watch the video of it or play it, you see that there is even a battle background behind the words, only they're encouraging words. Instead of the image of the monster or enemy that you're fighting, and the text instructions there for the battle instead. And these encouraging words, among them the key word, rather than wisdom or friendship, though there is plenty of that present too, seems to be courage. And that makes sense. After passing through the frightening town of Threed, and after encountering the disaster that's befallen the idyllic Saturn Valley, or maybe even looking at that story of Saturn and stumbling upon the topsy-turvy Saturnalia, or coming across Goya's painting, Saturn devouring one of his children. It's understandable, then, that courage should be the emphasis. And with that, interestingly enough, there's even faith in the victory of good over evil. It's a question, though. And who is it that's asking this question? And who is it, this I, who is encouraging you? It doesn't sound really like your dad on the phone. But it does sound kind of like someone telling a story, putting together important events and elements and gathering them within a narrative so as to keep them in perspective. Playing this game as a kid, maybe I was almost as impatient at these few minutes as I was before, waiting behind the waterfall. But now, looking back, I find in them very much to contemplate. And I wonder what you all notice. I hope you'll send me your thoughts. But I think I've kept you long enough this week, so to recap... I suggested investing your time in some of the other teachers out there, making their work freely available. And we hustled from Threed to Saturn Valley. We had a look at some ladders and some great art, some stories, images that should be giving you nightmares for a while, as beautiful as their form in other ways may be, and as some beautiful language, too. Yeah. Next time we'll move on to the desert, but oh, before that we have a conversation with my buddy Steve. Until then, thanks again for listening. Take care.